you know, the, the likely the likely long term prognosis if the birth rate continues to collapse is economic collapse and, you know, potentially, you know, you know, an implosion of the complex civilization that we currently have, you know, for a host of interconnected reasons. But it but it I mean that seems it seems much less likely to me that that would end in the complete extinction of the human species. In fact, it's probably, you know, it's probably, you know, the, the prognosis, the overall prognosis for the human species is probably better if that civilization does collapse, at least if you believe the Greta Thunberg analysis, than if it doesn't. So from that point of view, you know, the, the, the human civilization that survives or emerges out of the wreckage of that will be the one that succeeded in unplugging from the Skinner machine and has succeeded in figuring out how to be fruitful rather than being led astray by all the great many things that people opt to do instead of uh, being fruitful and multiplying. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? I'm really excited to welcome Mary Harrington to the Beatrice Institute podcast. Mary is a journalist and a prolific writer. She writes for many publications, but most frequently for Unheard, which is an online journal dedicated to provide a platform for unheard ideas, people, and places. I think she's maybe one of the most interesting writers in the world today. I sent her articles around, I think, more than any other writer I know. I'm very intimidated by the depth and breadth of her work. Uh, She writes about so many things with great clarity and intellectual rigor. So... She recently published her first book called Feminism Against Progress, which brings together several of the ideas that she's been exploring in her writing. We're talking about a lot of those ideas and many other things as well. So welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I want to start out with a few general questions just to get the ball rolling, uh, to get us thinking. So first question, so what brings an end to it all, the ecological apocalypse or the demographic apocalypse? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously we need to remember that apocalypse doesn't mean end, does it? You know, it means it's about it's about a revelation, you know, an uncovering of things which were hidden. So the the apocalypse doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. Um, I think it's it's more than plausible that we're looking at the end of this world. In fact, we're pretty much staring the end of this world in the face. Yeah, and lots of people articulate that idea that idea from a bunch of different perspectives. You know, the the Extinction Rebellion campaign, which is active in the United Kingdom where I live, talks about climate apocalypse. You know, other often more conservative thinkers and writers talk about the the collapsing birth rate, which in a sense, you know, is only is only really a bad thing if you're committed to never ending economic growth. You know, I mean, if you're once you let go of the idea that the economy has to keep growing everywhere forever, and that we all have to keep consuming more stuff everywhere forever, then population collapse isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, there's there's a, there's a lot of humans, um, and if it's happening, if it's happening because people are just opting to have fewer children, you know, a slightly a slightly bleak way of bleak but pragmatic way of looking at it would be that you know, this is this is just nature reasserting a balance. You know, nature is healing in a sense. And there's a there's been a sort of collective, perhaps not very rational, not very conscious, but nonetheless deeply felt sense that the order that we currently live under is so structurally 
anti-natalist and so structurally, you know, committed, hostile to the idea that we might have a future. That that perhaps we, you know, we women have taken the collective decision just to just to you know opt us opt us all out of the prospect of, of continuing along that trajectory. So from that from that point of view, you know, it's a it's a rebellion in favour of extinction. But I don't see that it's necessarily going to end in extinction. It would, you know, the the likely the likely long term prognosis if the birth rate continues to collapse is economic collapse and you know potentially you know you know an implosion of the complex civilization that we currently have you know for a host of interconnected reasons but it, but it i mean that seems it seems much less likely to me that that would end in the complete extinction of the human species in fact it's probably you know it's probably you know the, the prognosis the overall prognosis for the human species is probably better if that civilization does collapse at least if you believe the greta thunberg analysis than if it doesn't so from that point of view you know the, the the human civilization that survives or emerges out of the wreckage of that will be the one that succeeded in unplugging from the skinner machine and has succeeded in figuring out how to be fruitful rather than being led astray by all the great many things that people opt to do instead of um, being fruitful and multiplying but i th- i think the the, the likelihood that the likelihood that there will just be no more people in 400 years seems seems much less plausible to me than the likelihood that our civilization will no longer be there in 400 years, which seems extremely probable. Yeah, so you allude to this, but if fertility rates do go back up, to so say replacement rates in Western countries in, say, 100 years, what do you suspect will have been the primary cause of the reversal? And you hinted at this a little bit already. I mean, I think techno-capital is structurally antinatalist. So, you know, the, 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 like, the, the best way we could fix that issue would be to have a different economic order. Or, or, and by, by, by economy, I mean, I mean, in the broadest sense of it, of, you know, not just being a system of material and monetary exchange, but, you know, an economy in the, the, the sense of household economy, you know, the, 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 the holistic mix of social, cultural, spiritual, material practices and beliefs that constitute a life world. I mean, I think having having one of those, a life, a life world other than techno-capital is probably the most likely way to encourage people, induce people to want to multiply into the future again. Yeah. So this is a really good transition to another set of questions about the the economic relationships between men and women, which is, I think, really a central piece of, of your book. But I first want to talk a little bit about this idea of progress. So a central premise at least at the beginning of your book, is your loss of faith in the religion of progress, right? So you say this, it's not self-evident that humans have progressed in some absolute sense. That doesn't mean that everything was perfect once and we're all going to hell in a handbasket, but pick a subject and you'll find some things are better while other things are worse. So what is the system or set of values you use to determine when things are better or when they're getting worse? Probably the, the, the simplest answer I can give is slightly an evasion, or perhaps, I don't know, maybe it's not an evasion, but the, the simplest answer I could give is if, 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 we're, if we're getting it right, where it's in living according to our nature. I mean, I think just to expand on that a little bit, I use I use chickens. I draw I use chickens as an analogy quite a lot because they're I, we have chickens at home and they I find them very characterful for something quite that dumb. But they also they also illustrate a bunch of a bunch of quite complex. Like they, they they inhabit an interesting space in human culture and human civilization because they they sit right at the edge of like they're a symbiotic species with humans and have been for a, for a very very long time. I mean I think I believe the chickens are the most numerous bird on the planet. And that's partly that's that's because they're farmed for meat. So in a sense, you know, a great many chickens need to take one for the team in exchange for being that successful in aggregate as a species. Right, but, right. But there's, <laughs> um, 
but one of one of the things I mean, I mean, we keep we keep chickens in the backyard, and they they scratch and peck and forage, and I I get a great deal of pleasure out of watching them live according to their nature, which is to say, you know, their their nature as it's emerged really in conjunction with humans over millennia, you know, and it's it's dif- it, it's dif- it would be difficult to disaggregate chickens from humans now and expect them to revert immediately back to being red jungle fowl in in the those those tropical parts of the world where where they originated but you know despite the fact that their nature is in a sense now inextricable from humans they have a nature and you don't it doesn't take a huge amount of time observing chickens to to get a sense of a sort of gestalt sense of what that is you know they have their they have their form of sociality which works for them it's it's not one that i think i would enjoy because it involves a lot of violence and is fiercely hierarchical <laughs> but you know you know they have they have their social life and they have they have the things you know they obviously like they they obviously enjoy scratching um, you, you and it's you, you get a sense of that just intuitively from watching them they take great pleasure in it they take great pleasure in the in the in the things they do which are just you know the chickens chickening and from for most of our most of our, our our species relationship historic relationship with chickens i think people have people have understood that instinctively and been been willing to you know grant you know afford chickens a life that that is more bro- broadly in accordance with their nature, in exchange for which some chickens sometimes take one for the team and go in the pot, or you know we 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 get the eggs and they get the grain and we kind of we keep them in a we keep them safe from predators at night and you know overall arrangement the work the you know overall the arrangement has worked pretty well historically, and then I contrast that with the industrial farming of chickens where really the you know the there is there is a, a grudging recognition that chickens have a nature and gr- and the minimal cons- minimal possible concessions will be made to that nature in order for the chickens to not to just die or you know be chronically prone to disease and just and you know cannibalism and all the other things which happen in intensive chicken farming i mean the the horrors are just a, a, a litany of hor- absolutely unending horrors um, in what what happens in the industrialization of poultry but I think about that approach to chickens, which is really actively hostile to me seeing chickens as they are and to, you know, conducting a relationship with chickens. We know which is a it's a meat, it's a farming relationship, which is in a sense exploitative, but, you know, in accordance with the chicken's nature, as opposed to one which makes the bare minimum concessions to a chicken's nature in order to extract the maximum possible resource out of them, as it were, viewing them as just, you know, just as Heidegger would put it, as the standing reserve. You know, it's a sort of, you know, they might be alive, but we just don't care. They're just standing reserve. You know, our only interest in them is what we can challenge forth, you know, as meat or pure profit, as you depending on how you want to view it. So, I mean, this this by way of a very, very extended analogy for... I mean, to me, I, I'm, I'm instinctively revolted by that relationship to a, a, a living a living species, or frankly, to anything at all, but particularly to to living animals. That just seems to me a profound evil. And, you know, if I, if I were to just zoom that back out again to... I mean, you know, the, the question of what human nature is is a very vexed one, but I think, you know, you, you and I would probably agree that, that we have we have a kind of gestalt sense that there is such a thing. You know, and there is even if we were only able to sketch the barest outlines before running into a host of kind of political disagreements or discomforts or very radioactive topics. You know, there's a you know there is a normative developmental pathway for children, for example, and there are normative needs that a baby has. You know, there are there are developmental inflection points. You know, men and women exist, and we're not interchangeable. You know, all all of these things are observably true, and um, outside certain highly politicised environments, um, it's it's just common sense to acknowledge the, that this is the case. And I suppose I would say, you know, if there's a 
it, by, by way of a very roundabout answer to your question, you know, when what does doing it better look like? It looks like being able to live more in accordance with that nature to the best of our understanding of it, you know, as opposed to treating ourselves or, or each other as standing reserve. Would you call that flourishing? It sounds very similar to the way in which at least Tyler sure. and, and Brendan I mean, talk I'm, about it. I'm, I'm not a Roman Catholic and flour- human flourishing is one of those sort of code words that I think people kind of you know, broadcast at one another, you know, which, which I'm happy to use on many occasions. But I, I, I think somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps not aware of the full nuance of it in its, in its Roman Catholic context. But, yeah, I would say I mean, flourishing, I think, is as good a term for that as any, you know, doing, doing well according to your nature. You can tell when a chicken is flourishing or not flourishing. And I think, too, you know, it's, much, it's, it's a much more complicated question when it come, where it comes to people. But it's difficult to dispute that there are some some there are better and worse ways of living and flourishing as a person. That must surely be. Yes, yeah, so I do want to return. Uh, keep talking about this question of your understanding of nature, uh, because this is a point of the moment that we're in. You you refer to the movement against nature, sort of bio libertarianism. Uh, and in fact, I read an Atlantic article. One of the critiques of your work was that there seemed to be the sense in which anything natural is good. And I'm wondering what your response is to that sort of critique. Are there are there those things that are natural necessarily good? If not, how do you conceptually how do you conceptually tell the difference between good nature and bad nature? I don't know. I think I sort of felt like that was a bad faith critique because it's it, it's imputing to me the is ought fallacy, um, which in fact I think belongs to the belongs to my critics rather than to me. You know, I I I don't say I don't say that things which are natural are good. I say that they just I say that they are. And and we need we, we we owe it to ourselves and to reality to have a measure of pragmatism in meeting the world where it is, you know. And that's not a that's not a moral prescription. It's an it's an encouragement to to realism and to being observant. So whenever I read someone like uh, Kurzweil, Kurzweil, I'm actually not sure how to pronounce his name, Harari, and even Mark Andreessen, I read a piece uh, that Mark Andreessen just put in for, for, uh, free press about AI. AI save the world, yes, exactly. It's not so much I disagree with them. But I simply cannot understand under any circumstances why their vision of the future is remotely appealing. And I realize that I can't even really amount an argument for why I would want to live life in what, you know, Paul Kingsworth calls the machine. It's just so self-evident to me, right? And, and you've done a great job of raising that argument. But I, I wonder, to a certain extent, is there just simply a fundamental irreconcilable difference between those that see nature as primarily a force to be embraced and those that see nature as one to be overcome? Quite possibly. You know, at which point you're in quite Schmittian territory, aren't you? You know, because at the end, of the, you know, uh, the, the enemy is the one who seeks to destroy your way of life. Then, you know, the, the, there comes a point where those two worldviews really are quite radically opposed. I don't, I don't think we're at that point yet. And I think there's a great deal of nuance and, you know, and things to be teased out. But, yeah, I, I, at some point, I think there's a, fun, there's a fundamental disjunction. I mean, you know, there are. Yeah, yes. Um, you know, but before before I get accused of just being sort of, you know, fully Schmittian, unhinged frame breaker type, um, let me let me actually clarify that a little bit. There are a lot of open questions for me about the relationship between the relationship between nature and technology, the relationship between us and technology and, you know, the relationship between us and the future. And one of one of which is whether whether this extractive, if you like, the the sort of hype the the whether this extractive exploitative you know, effort of total mastery is the only relation, only possible relationship with technology. I don't know the answer to that question, but it's it's I, it's kind of my hope that it isn't. You know, that the, another another technology might be possible. You know, and there are much more erudite and serious thinkers than me have disagreed on that point. But it's, I mean, is it 
is it completely beyond the wit of man to reorder technology to human nature, for example? You know, we might have spent the last century or so, you know, wielding every technological innovation at our disposal to try and overcome the limits of human nature. But I mean, one of the central theses in my book has been that that it just doesn't work. You know, as hard as you try and abolish human nature, it just comes back reordered to the market. That's all that's all you get. You know, you try and abolish the, the, the asymmetry between men and women in terms of mate-seeking behaviour, which is rooted in, in reproductive asymmetry, right? And all that happens is that, is that sex differences come back reordered to the market. And, you, and then, you get, um, then you get red pill discourse and incels and, you know, all the, all the various toxic and destructive ways that men and women find themselves at loggerheads with one another. Because those asymmetries, which used to be managed socially, are now, are now managed through market mechanisms, which turn them into sort of adversarial weapons. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example. Or, or, you know, you end up with a sex industry where, you know, the men are exploited by being turned into ad- addicted consumers and women are exploited by being turned into the product. Um, and just every- and it, and it just sucks all around. You know, everybody's having a horrible time, apart from the people who are, who are creaming the money off the top. Yeah, you know, our, our, you know, men's desire to look at young, pretty women hasn't gone away. It's just been reordered to the market and, you know, by the same women's, women's youthful hotness hasn't gone away either that's just come back reordered to the market and so so it doesn't matter how hard we try and abolish human that, that's just one of a zillion examples i could give and and given this i think you know it, it ought not to be beyond the wit of man to take the the you know incalculable wealth of technological you know innovation and creativity and that we've that we've come up with so far and and, and stop trying to just stop trying to abolish our own nature with it you know it should be it ought to be possible to order those innovations to to what we actually are rather than trying to stop trying to not be that. You're actually going towards, it's actually something we've been talking a lot here about the, at the University of Pittsburgh, is we've been talking a lot about, we were, just, we're working on this initiative with, at, within the University of Pittsburgh, is to think about how we apply, how we orient the applied arts and sciences towards human flourishing. So and I think that the way we're talking about this is very similar. So for example, one of my colleagues is in engineering. We have this course that we're working on together called uh, Engineering Happiness, right? So the idea is, how do we orient the field of engineering towards the promotion of human flourishing rather than extraction of money or, or designing things for their own sake? So I actually do, I feel like there's that possibility, but then in other moments, I see the power of sort of bio-libertarians. And my only thought is like, can I get a place next to Paul King's North, right? Yeah, I don't know. But at the same time, you know, we, we started out, we, we started out with apocalypse, didn't we? And, you know, it seems, it seems again, not implausible to me that the people, whoever it is who survives the, the, the great upheaval will be not only who's the, that, that subset, that subset of people who's succeeded, who's figured out how to unplug from the Skinner machine, but also that subset of people who figured out how to use, how, how to use what we know without, without, without you ending up, you, without succumbing to that temptation, but which I, I guess is an extension of the, of the unplugging from the Skinner machine, isn't it? So one question I did have is, um, so my wife and I, you know, we're Roman Catholics. And so we talk a lot about, you know, to your point, natural family planning. And I, I have um, a lecture that I give one of my classes about whether or not the birth control is healthcare, right? So I use it as an object to sort of think through what is healthcare. But I was been now, the surprised. Birth control pill is the first transhumanist moment. Right, exactly, exactly. But I've actually been surprised with how many young women are actually quite open to the argument because... They have this sneaking suspicion that, that they can't quite articulate that maybe this hasn't been good for me, uh, the, being on birth control since I was 15. Have you found that, in this, you know, as you give these talks, there's some openings, there's some openings Absolutely. in unexpected places? Um, the, the last chapter in my book I call Rewilding Sex, and, it's, I, I, and in it I make the feminist argument against the pill. Now, it's, I, I was expecting a lot more pushback than I got. 
And what what really interested me was the demographics of the 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 the, the people who push back, and for the most part, it has been boomers. My, my Gen Z female readers read it and they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for putting into words something which I've been struggling. Right. You know, that, 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 has been, that has been very much more frequently the response. Like, ha, I hadn't thought about it like that. Or yes, you've absolutely put into words something which I was struggling to express. But very rarely has it been, you know, have, this, is, this is ludicrous and rabidly anti-feminist and, you know, are you, are you out of your mind? It's been very much more, yeah. That response, if it comes at all, tends to come from boomers, or it comes from 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 the kind of men who enjoy a lot of casual encounters. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've actually they, found they would say that, right? Yeah, exactly. I <laughs> wouldn't know. Yeah. So I want to explore a little bit the evolution of relationships between men and women over time, especially as it relates to economics and technology. This is really sort of chapters two and three uh, in your book. Uh, this sort of is. Um, this genealogy, I think, if you can probably call it that, uh, forms the backbone of the again the early parts of your book. So, do you see the relationship between men and women as one ontologically, so in its essence and its nature, of solidarity and cooperation, or of primordial conflict and exploitation? It doesn't really make sense to me to think of the relationship between men and women as one, you know, that, that primarily structured by conflict. I mean, I've drawn, as 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 fairly as as will be clear to you from from reading it, I've drawn very heavily on Ivan Illich in my reading of what's going on. I mean, in a sense, all, all that feminism against progress does is is pick up Ivan Illich's 1982, 1982 book, Gender, and and develop some of its themes for the digital and the biotech era. That's all I'm really doing. Yeah. Mary's one weird trick. Uh, <laughs> um, so, but, and, but Illich, I mean, he has, he has this lovely analogy in when he talks about the, what he calls vernacular gender, which is to say, as he sees it, the, 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 the irreducible duality of male and female life worlds in the pre-modern era, which he describes as a cross-cultural phenomenon in which, as he, I'm, I'm crudely paraphrasing, he says, unisex work is the rare exception if it happens at all. And this is true across across cultures in, a, in pre-modern contexts. And it's only with the advent of industrial society that the idea of unisex work becomes possible, and with it the idea of a genderless human, and with that genderless economics. And he argues that it's only in that context that women come to be structurally disadvantaged in the way which feminism then responds to. So that's that's really the that that's the sort of conceptual foundation from that's my starting point in feminism against progress. But it doesn't really make sense in that you know if you if you accept Illich's argument and I, and I think he I think he makes the case persuasively in the book Gender. I encourage anybody who's listening to this who hasn't read it to read it's a it's a profound uh, mind altering book. It doesn't make sense. You know, he has this lovely analogy of, how, of the, the relationship between the left hand and the right hand. You know, they're not the same. You know, my, my left hand and my right hand are not the same thing, you know, and they have, you know, there, there are things, I'm, I'm left-handed, and so, so there, are, there are things this hand can do that the other one can't or just won't, and it didn't. But in, in terms of how, how my hands relate to one another, there's no, there's no sense of antagonism. You know, it's not, <laughs> but they, they, they work together. You know, you're, you're tying your shoelaces. Both of your hands know what to do. Um, in, in in relation to one another, and they're and they're irreducibly dual, but they're also irreducibly interconnected because um, they're, they're yeah, and and that's that's really his analogy for for the the, the what what he calls ambiguous complementarity in the relationship between men and women. So I, I don't I, I suppose I'm very slightly dodging your question by quoting Ivan Illich at you, but just just to say I I, I broadly I, I agree with his analysis. I find it persuasive, and to me the idea that there there exists some eternal patriarchal animus dating back to the dawn of time against which women have eternally been struggling, seems to me a very tendentious effort to antedate a contemporary set of problems, which Illich, in fact, um, dates from the beginning of modernity, to provide a kind of ancient origin story to something which is a peculiarly modern problem. Yeah. 
So then this is related to, to, what, to what you just said here is what is a traditional family uh, vis-a-vis the economic <laughs> relationships between men and women? So we always, we throw this term around, the traditional family. Sometimes we're talking about the 60s breadwinner. What, what is a traditional family? Uh, I don't, that, that's not a, the, the short answer to that question is that I, I have, I have dissented from, I suppose, the sort of pop conservative sense of traditional family in the book. In fact, I, I completely invert the the pop conservative you know, received meaning of that phrase. I mean, when when you hear say on say on the radio, you hear you know, let, let's say you're listening to a conservative radio host, and they say the traditional family. You, it's a fairly safe bet that what they're talking that what they're referring to is a stay at home mum and a breadwinning dad, and you know an indeterminate number of children, but at least two who live who own their own house and. And that's approximately the template. And she, she, she cares for the kids and makes the house nice and puts lovely meals on the table and, and he goes out to work. And, and that's so, so, so really what we're talking about is a template. But, but it's, it's my argument in Feminism Against Progress that that's not traditional. That's actually the, the trouble with that is that it's not traditional enough. It is, in fact, peculiarly modern because that kind of family life is an artifact of the industrial era, and particularly of the point where, where work left the home and, and you know, men, men and women's working life stopped being centred around um, subsistence life in a productive household with the household as the central economic unit and became something which happened outside the home. Where, and economic agency and economic productivity, if you like, drained from the home, which then became a site of pure consumption and of respite from the rigors of the competitive economic marketplace, the, the, the rigors of market society, if you like to borrow from Polanyi, and that and that, but that's a that's a distinctively modern phenomenon because it's inseparable from industrialization. Prior to that, this just wasn't wasn't really a thing. Men and women both worked. They might have done, you know, as, as Illich puts it, they might have done very. They, they, they would have their, their work would never have overlapped. You know, women women did one thing, but women's work and men's work were not the same thing. But it was all it was all it all took place broadly within a, within a productive household. And I, and I mean, if I if I were to if I were to think of a traditional family, um, I would want to date. I, I would want to look more closely at that kind of a template. Some, you know, I, w- I would be more interested in recovering a version of the productive household that suits twenty first century material conditions, rather than attempting to recover the industrial era template. Because it seems to me the the, the material conditions, and in fact the social and cultural conditions for that, simply no longer obtain in large enough, you know. In enough of enough of the across enough of the social fabric for that really to be reasonable or um, attainable or even frankly desirable. I mean, I think about the Gen Z friends I have who 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 despair of being able ever to to leave sort of roommate existence for a even a rented apartment with a partner, and they also despair of finding a partner, and they despair of, certainly you know as for having kids. I mean, you forget it. You think under those circumstances, you know what 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 does what does the traditional family in the in the radio host sense mean to them? You know, you're 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 so many you're so many notches of of cultural and material and political change away from that that it's meaningless. And I think you know, but you, they they and but those those gens those kids would be, you know, not unreasonably justified in just laughing in your face. But you know, some form of the productive household. It's it's probably not agrarian localism on its own, but it could be something. I feel like there's the, the, there are lines of inquiry there which which feel more more fruitful or more possible or more attainable, and that might might in fact involve extending extending familial groupings or you know the extending the household beyond the sort of nuclear kernel potentially in ways which which again you know might might have potential as as, as avenues to explore for for human flourishing. So, do you think the knowledge economy 
is a mechanism by which we might return to this pre-industrial household as a cooperative economic unit. I was struck, particularly over COVID, where, you know, so I read a lot of um, Wendell Berry. So his book, uh, his essay, Feminism, the Body and the Machine, yes, was really helpful for me to think through this. Mm-hmm. You know, how he sort of argued that actually his wife was an editor and she worked for a small publishing house, which is the Berry's living room, right? And I got a little, I was like, oh man, that'd be a great way to sort of live and work with my wife and my children of like trying to produce something together as a family. Got a little sniff of that during COVID, right? Where we were, we were educating the kids, I was on my laptop, she was on her laptop, and, and we weren't, our works weren't overlapping, but it felt like something, it's something approximated Barry's vision of a, of a productive household working together both in the education and the, the production of survival. Do, do you think that the knowledge economy might be the way in where we can sort of reimagine that sort of pre-industrial uh, economic unit of the home? With some fairly heavy qualifications, yes. I mean, it's, it's, this is obviously not a universal panacea. You know, it's, it's a very class plus specific solution right. yeah. i mean <laughs> that's that's not a that's not a criticism necessarily it's just an acknowledgement that it has limitations and there are people for whom it won't apply yeah literally my next question here if so is this a privilege of the elite <laughs> so yes. that's my next question yeah <laughs> right yes it really is i mean but that, that, that's not to say that's not to say it isn't a you know desirable and something to orient yourself towards if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you could have that I mean, it seems seemed to. I, I think if you if you have if you have the opportunity to structure your life like that, you'd be crazy not to. Certainly, if you're a woman who who is or would like to be a mother, you'd be crazy not to order your life such as to be able to to run your household like that, especially when your children are young. And it's something that has to start early. You know, I was reading some of the examples in your book, and there was very much there were writers and and uh, you know uh, craftspeople, sort of young adults. But I realize now at 43, it's sort of hard to go back from being a professor and a nurse practitioner. And it seems like we've, like, Jen, whatever Jen we are, I think we're probably about the same Jen, I have a feeling. I don't know if we can, re- I don't know if we can remake this. And I think maybe our call is to help our kids figure out a way that they can make lives like this. Yeah, that seems reasonable. I mean, I'm very fortunate in that sense, in that I was terrible at everything I, I ever tried to do in career-wise, up to the point where I had, I had a child and then I, then I was a mum for a few years, which was great. And I, I became a writer completely by accident in the course of trying to trying to find something something to do, trying to find a fruitful way of using, you know, those those limited talents that I have, you know, that was compatible with caring for her and, and, and doing all of that. And I pitched a couple of articles and, and then it kind of snowballed. <laughs> and, that, and that's really how that happened. And then very, very shortly after that, COVID happened. And there was a period where, you know, for for reasons to do with our, our domestic situation, I was the only breadwinner. And so I, I had to, I was I was forced by circumstance to really accelerate a career, which I'd never really thought of as much more than just a fun thing, to, a fun side thing. And suddenly I was working full time. And then, but really, you know, coming out the other side of that, we found ourselves, we, we found our, our life together is structured very much more like a productive household, just in terms of the way it's shaken down, partly as a Partly with the with the with the thumbprint of COVID and everything which happened during that period upon us, and it was a it was a very challenging period of adjustment. You know, going from being a stay at home mum to being both being around one another all the time is not. You know, you might you might think it would just be fun, but it's 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 honest. It's it's kind of challenging. You know, you have to learn entirely new ways of occupying space together, and it's not straightforward. I mean, this is. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disembowel my my private family life because it's not really fair on my husband and my daughter. But yeah, it, it was a, it was definitely it was a learning curve for us for sure. And I, I dare say I dare say a variant of that is true for anybody who ever tries to make the make the gear change from either both working full time or one or or the you know the, the 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 radio host traditional family. 
to something more like a productive household, you find that there are there are new kinds of negotiations that you have to you have to confront in order to make it work because they're they're completely completely in different paradigms. So changing the subject a little bit, in the U.S., was the sexual revolution an organic or planned process? Huh. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's to the best of my understanding of the history. I mean, the history of the sexual revolution is complicated. It really begins in the early 19th century. You know, there have been there have been sexual revolutionaries attempting to incite a sexual revolution for you know for, for like 150 years by the time it actually happened. It was only really with the advent of reliable birth control that you know, they had they had more they had uptake beyond just a few crazy people. Um, and you know radicals and you know life experimenters. You know there was that there was that uh, sort of heretical Christian commune in upstate New York where they all they all practiced complex marriage. I think they called it John Humphrey Noyes, the Oneida community, and they they had to teach all of the guys how to you know do the deed without finishing, which takes a, you know a considerable amount of you know effort and discipline and practice. Yeah. <laughs> Fortitude before, before you get yeah right. Um, so you know it's, it's like it's like so they they were like full 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 bore sexual revolutionaries in the early nineteenth century, but like that's clearly that's not for everybody because you you know you're not going to just trust you're, gonna, you're not going to trust some random dude off the street to to <laughs> to keep up his end of the bargain necessarily right. it's only really when you've got the once the tech fix is in place but then so was it was it was it a revolution from above um i think it was like the there are a number of different strands to it i mean the it's easy to forget because so much of it has been memory hold just how much of the early 20th century progressive movement was was bound up in the eugenesis project and I think it's very difficult to disaggregate the the sexual revolution as it as it came to be from from that eugenicist project, which is very much and a planned not, not, process. Sorry? Which is very much right, planned right, and not organic. Exactly. You know, these are. Um, I mean, you know, Margaret Sanger and Mary Stopes, you know, famously or notoriously, were both were both committed eugenicists, and their, their their name and legacy on that front has been scrubbed, even though their their institutions are still alive and well, and you know, some might argue still merrily practicing eugenics. Um, I mean, the if I remember rightly, the one of the main drivers behind the campaign to legalize abortion was a man who had been leading a, camp, a eugenicist campaign, and who realised that he was going to get his way on legalizing abortion only if he managed to hitch it to the feminist project. So there are there are there are a number of strands that converge there, in in terms you know different people who saw their interests aligning in in really what 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 was a technological revolution. And who saw who saw a way of harnessing that technological revolution to their particular um, to, to to their particular you know idealistic or ideological ends? I mean the other the the other I think underrated factor in the, the sort of elite revolution of the sexual revolution is the the psychoanalytic one. I mean I'm thinking particularly of Wilhelm Reich, who's a very who's a lit, sort of little little read and little understood figure now, but who who has a who's been who's astonishingly influential in his his beliefs about the, the the political the the, the anti fascist political significance of sexual sexual dissolution essentially you know un, the unchaining of desire he thought he thought was inextricable from lead, leading the fight against the resurgence of fascism um, and that's that's an idea which is now treated more or less as self evident you know when you when you look at the 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 the, 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 the annual summer parade of you know that that celebrates 
sexual self-expression. Implicitly, the idea at the heart of it is that doing this, doing this is good and is obviously good because not doing it leads to fascism. Nobody ever really questions that central premise. You know, does it really lead to fascism? Well, I'm right. I forget the exact quote, but I mean, he, he, he comes out directly and says it. You know, the family is the incubator of, of, fasc- of, of, of fascism. Yeah. And Wilhelm Reich plays a central role in, sorry to mention Matthew Crawford again, but he's another co-writer on Herd. He plays a central role in Matthew Crawford's argument that the sexual revolution was a, was a U.S. government psyops campaign. So that's, <laughs> so that might be, for the listeners, that might be one you might want to read uh, to get a little more look into, into Wilhelm Reich's role in um, uh, in the sexual revolution. So, I mean, it's my, my general, my usual rule of thumb on these things is that it's almost like the, the conspiracy theories are usually directionally correct, even if they're factually wrong. And I think it would be like, it, it seems unlikely to me that the sexual revolution was a, was a carefully planned elite psyop to do, I mean, who knows what. But it does, it seems, it seems more than plausible to me that there were, there were some people with a, a relatively high level of social and cultural and economic capital who saw, who saw this as net positive, could see very few downsides. To the sexual revolution, and who therefore rolled it out across the board without really thinking about how it would land for people for people with less cultural capital or poor impulse control or you know, a history of a history of violence and trauma and so on. You know, who just who just didn't spare a thought for the trafficked women from the developing world because they just because they just didn't think they didn't think about them. and and they were just you know, and and who were sufficiently focused on just making life easier and freer for themselves that it never occurred to them that making life easier and freer that that freedom freedom for the pike is death to the minnow as I, I think I, I forget I think it was Chesterton who said that but essentially that freedom of the pike is death to the minnow and I mean the, you know John Stuart Mill was the original elite revolutionary in that sense wasn't he and yeah there have been there have been a great many more since. So you bring up conspiracy theories, and this is a question I like to ask my guests. And so I'll preface it with one question for you. So if the basic facts of a conspiracy theory are inaccurate, is the conspiracy theory necessarily untrue? I think the way to read conspiracy theories is poetically. Absolutely. Without, even if, even if they're, they're factually, like it's possible to debunk them, you know, in a strict factual sense. Very, it's very often the case that if you, if you read them poetically, if you like a sort of mythologies, they come very much into focus. I mean, perhaps a, a, a simple example I can give, there are very much more complicated and much more radioactive examples than this, but a simple example that I wrote about last year, I think it was last year, is the, the, the one that says Biden is an AI. Joe Biden is not real. Right. I mean, this is a, this, this is a meme that sort of circulates in the, the weird internet periodically. That, like, people say, you know, he's, he's computer generated. He's not, he doesn't actually, you know, there, there are glitches, there, there are glitches in the video footage of him. You know, look at his ears. He's, it's a different guy. You know, Joe Biden is not real. And I, I was reading this and I was thinking, that's probably not true. Like Joe Biden is almost certainly like an actual guy. And, you know, it seems much more likely that he's, that he's not CGI and he's not played by a series of crisis actors and whatever. But what I, what I, it's, it's plausible to me that what that expresses is a sense that somehow the agency which should be vested in the president of the United States actually resides elsewhere. And if you read it, if you read it sort of mythically in that sense, I, I think there's actually something to it. Right. Yeah. So is there a conspiracy theory that's particularly poetic to you that you're particularly vulnerable to believing? I always pressure test myself on this question quite frequently to see how my thinking's going. Which, which of the, uh, I mean, the one, the, one of the ones which I, I find poetically resonant and perhaps the most disturbing 
I probably shouldn't even say this on Maine. But there's a whole there's a whole nest of conspiracy theories, all of which, to be absolutely clear, I don't think are literally true, to do with the harvesting of human body parts for consumption by the elite, or particularly the harvesting of children's body parts or body fluids for consumption by the elite. You know, all of which is I, I think it's very unlikely that any of that is literally true. However, um, what is what is literally true is that there are several well-established companies, you know, abundantly well-funded by Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, that will move a university college students across the border into across the border into Mexico, so they can give plasma donations um, to, for, for transfusion into wealthy Silicon Valley buyers, you know, for, in the interests of preserving youth. And you're thinking that's that's kind of it's not quite keeping children under Central Park so you can harvest their adrenochrome. But it's, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, you understand, like, there's a, there's a whole sort of memeplex that, to do with the, the, the cannibalization of the young for the, for the sort of ghoulish zombie preservation of the old, which, I mean, you know, has, has a kind of literal, literal drop of truth where it comes to, you know, plasma donations for Silicon Valley squillionaires. But then it also, to me, has a metaphorical resonance in the, the, the cannibalization of the social order in order to preserve, for example, the pension scheme. You know this this sense that there's a there's a sort of gerontocratic grip on the levers of power and also the 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 priorities of the economy, which is now burning the furniture to keep warm. You know, in a way which is palpably which is very very tangible. You know, to the absolute outrage of the young of the emerging younger generations. And you know, and, and I think that in many ways, conspiracy theories function as almost folklore, f- fairy tales yes. to express yes, the fears. Exactly of the people, right? And so when we don't pay attention to them, and, and actually they turn out to be true <laughs> uh, more often than we're comfortable admitting that they're actually factually true also. Um, I mean, Alex Jones was right about chemicals going into the water that, that cause, that disrupt, disrupt the sexual behavior of frogs, shall we say. Um, it's, just, it's just not a government conspiracy. <laughs> it's, the, it's the contraceptive pill, amongst other things. So a couple more questions for you. I know we're coming up on the end of time. But was sex in 1923 more erotic than it is in 2023? I wasn't alive in 1923, so I have absolutely no idea. I mean, one thing, the, the only thing I will say about this, I, I wrote a, a, it's kind of a playful piece, but also serious in intent, I called The Three Laws of Pornodynamics. And one of the, the so, so the loosely based on the laws of thermodynamics. And what, what, one of them is the law of erotic entropy, which is that, you know, whatever it is that you start out masturbating to, you know, won't, won't get you going for very long and you have to go looking for harder and harder stuff. So pornography is a vector. It's not a, it's not a, a static thing. It has to force and direction. Then there's the, the law of conservation of libido, which is to say the more sexualized public life is, the less sexualized private life is, because there's, there's a, to, there's a, the, 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 the amount of, the amount of erotic energy in circulation is a constant. And finally, that every, Every taboo has an equal and opposite porn category, which is to say you can you can derive a fairly accurate sense of what it is that's forbidden in a society from from what it is that what what it is that turns up on Pornhub. But I think the the one the one which is particularly relevant to this, uh, well, all of, all of them are relevant. But I mean, it seems it seems clear to me that if the energy and frisson of uh, of a fetish, for example, is contingent on its being taboo, then pretty the most reliable way to make it into a turn-off would be to try and accept it. You know, to try and to try and normalise it and destigmatise it. And in fact, if you want if you want to keep the erotic frisson in life in any way, it would, or, and so 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 you have two choices. Like if you if you set out to destigmatise all of the all of the fetishes, people will go in search of darker and darker fetishes. And converse, you know, and, and the flip side of that 
is that if you want if you want people not to go looking for darker and darker fetishes, you have to you have to stigmatize vigorously even the fairly benign ones. Um, and as and, and it follows from this as a sort of general takeaway that that repression repression is an accelerant to desire, and and as such, we we would probably all be having a nicer time in private if we were a bit more prudish in public. So, last question. I a couple semesters ago, I was talking to students in my class about sex. I forget how this came up, but these topics tend to come up in my classes. And I made an offhand remark about how married sex is more frequent and better. And they fundamentally could not right, right, exactly. But I had I had to go to Google Scholar and download papers and put them on the screen because they fundamentally could not believe it. it. Again, it wasn't just so much that they're arguing stats; it was just this deep conviction that can't possibly be true. Why is that? Why do my students just can't even possibly conceive? that their sex lives are much worse than mine. Well, I mean, as, in a sense, partly it's a it's a little bit like it's a little bit like like the problem with talking about talking about marriage. This is something I I, I wrote about recently, and I, be, I think about it quite a lot. It's very easy to find people who write, usually women actually, who write publicly about how their marriage went wrong and finally collapsed. It's much 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 harder to find somebody who write publicly about how their marriage went wrong, nearly collapsed, and then didn't. Because it's and, and and that's for a very straightforward reason. It's just not fair on your spouse to do that because you're 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 disemboweling what was probably a very painful, protracted, difficult, unhappy time for both of you that you've you've both bent over backwards to try and repair and move on from. And you, and it's just you know airing your dirty laundry in that way is obviously going to be counterproductive. But this this creates a sort of knowledge gap, and particularly when we live in an atomized world where people and where where, where communities are, are not so not so well placed to share that information informally in the kind of you say say in a knitting circle you know the the, the just the, the we, we don't have we don't have private mean we don't have nearly such richly textured private means of transmitting that kind of information and so there's a real knowledge gap there so i think and and, and this this creates the mistaken impression that if something goes wrong in your marriage it's then it's therefore necessarily always going to end in divorce because it's simply because there's a sort of there's a there's a structural bias in the kind of information that gets put out there and i, th- I just think that's all it's something similar is almost certainly the case you know where, where, where you talk about married sexuality it's just not fair on your, on your partner to do it it's just not you, you, you uh, i think i mean you know that the number of the number of husbands who'd be happy to have their wives writing about their intimate lives is probably quite small um, whereas the number of single women writing about their intimate lives and their hookups is going to be proportionately much higher you know and i i would i'd be willing to bet that it's a it's a reporting bias like that which is principally responsible right well mary i wish we had more time but i know that you have to get back to uh to a lecture there in cambridge but i just want to thank you for coming on uh the podcast like i said uh i think you're one of the greatest writers working right now and i'm I'm grateful for all of your great work and this was a really fun and lively conversation so thanks so much for taking an hour of your time to to spend it with me thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure all right good thank you have a good afternoon thanks for listening If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.